Well, we continue in Luke, which is a very interesting book. Luke is one of three what? Synoptic Gospels. That's right. What does synoptic mean? One eye. Yeah, a single vision. And this outline looks rather similar to the outline we did for Matthew and the outline we did for Mark. Um, we're, uh, we're finishing up Jesus' ministry in Judea and then His ministry in and near Perea. Although, one of the things I've noticed with, with Luke, he doesn't mention geography very much. I, I haven't thrown in the map very often with, with this study just because he just for him it's not a big deal, it seems like. More interested in what Jesus said than where he, where he was when he said it. Alright. This is a very interesting section here on prayer. Um, I haven't counted, but I, I really think that Luke has more teaching about prayer than any of the other uh, Gospel writers. Um, and this one is... Uh, this section is really unique in Luke. In fact, a lot of the sections we're going to be doing today are found only in Luke. Um, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught His disciples. So Jesus then gave us what we could call a model prayer. Well, this is very, very similar to a prayer found where? In the Sermon on the Mount. That's right, in, in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Um, I've got a little outline on this section. We, we just read a model of prayer. And then the next section, he tells a little parable to teach the character of God. And this... Um, to me, this is just this is really funny because um, he's trying to tell us, you know, you really ought to ought to keep going with prayer. And he tells us a story about a guy that <laughs> that is not really behaving very cooperatively. Uh, he he's got a worse one later on in in our chapters. But you know, suppose one of you has a friend who goes to him at midnight, and says to him, "Friend, lend me." Three loaves because you know he's got company, and and in that society having company was a very serious matter. You really had to had to take care of them, even if it bankrupted you. And he and he's out of food, and you know he can't go to the grocery at midnight. Not to say that they had groceries, but um, he says, "Lend me three loaves." So what's the answer he gets? You're going to bed, <clears throat> Yeah, there's too much trouble to get up and help you. If I get, I mean, these people live in very small houses, and and it's it's very possible, very likely, in fact, that they only had one bed in their house, and that when he says his children were with him in bed, they they were actually in the bed he was in, and if he gets up, he's going to wake them up. I mean, just no, go away. (laughs) What's the end? What's the end of the story, though? Doesn't go away. (laughs) The guy doesn't go away. So the only way the guy's going to get peace is to get up, give him the three loaves of bread, and then he can go back to bed. And what's 
So what's the point about God? I mean, is God in bed with his kids and he can't get up? I mean, no. But the point is, keep going back, keep praying. Yeah, surely, if you can get what you want from a friend who's in bed with his kids and he doesn't want to get up, how much more can you get something from God, who is always ready to hear us? <clears throat> it's um. Um, yeah, I guess we could call this an argument from the lesser to the greater. Um, but I think Jesus is deliberately making a, doing a little bit of humor here just to emphasize the, the absurdity of us thinking that if we go to God, He won't hear us. Which, which how often do we think that? Um, so then, in verse 9 and following, you have the promise of prayer. Ask, and what will happen? Sure. Be It'll be given. Seek and what? Knock and... Yeah. Now, He wants us to keep on asking. He wants us to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking. Persistence is the point He's making here. God is looking for people who really seek Him. And, and so then He tells another story in verse 11. And here we have... The outline titles it Confidence in Our Father. Suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He won't give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Even earthly fathers, he says, you being evil. I mean, all humans are evil. But you know how to give good gifts to your children. Now, I'm sure we could find some extreme fathers that don't behave this way, but it'd be pretty rare. Um... Father, you, an earthly father, even even selfish fathers give good gifts to their children, and and they don't give you know bad things that are going to harm them. Um, he asks for an egg; he's not going to give him a scorpion. Well, let me just turn this around because I think we need to consider this. What if the child asked for a scorpion, not knowing how bad it would be and dangerous and all that? Um, do children ever ask for things that are bad for them? Sure. All the time. <laughs> it's all the time they're, they're doing that. And and good parents know you don't give their children something bad. You give them what's good for them. And one of the questions that you know believers for, for all ages have always asked is, why doesn't God answer my prayers? And, and different people have different, you know, come up with different answers, but one of the answers is maybe it would be harmful to you if He gave you what you're asking for. A little, a little kid who doesn't know any better asks for a scorpion, he doesn't understand that it would be bad and, and probably the parents can't even, can't even explain it to him. He's too little to understand. They give him something else instead and he, he's got, he has to learn faith in his parents if they know what's best and, and accept that. How many times, we'll never know, but how many times have we asked God for something and He hasn't given it to us because He knew it would be bad for us? And we're too much, too little children in our thinking to understand the difference. Would we want a God who gave us everything we asked regardless? That'd be disaster. So Jesus is wanting us to understand God is our Father. God loves us. He gives us good gifts. 
He wants us to ask. He's just he's really laying it on here. <laughs> All right. Then um, he was casting out a demon. Now we we actually had this in um, in the other gospels. Um, and and what do they say? How do they say he's casting the demon out? By yeah, by Beel, yeah, the chief of the demons, which is a, just a terrible blasphemy. Uh, so, among other answers, look in verse 21. He says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. Who's the strong man in that verse? Satan. Satan, yes. But when someone's stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, who's the someone stronger? That's Jesus. Yeah. He takes away from his all, his all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. That's what Jesus came to this earth to do. To attack the strong man Satan, plunder his possessions, and hand them out to his family, his brothers. Um, then he warns in verse 23, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Then... He has a, um, a little parable which we had, I think, in Matthew. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. This is a parable describing who? Linda? It's, yeah, I think, in this case, I think he's talking about the Jewish people. For um, the Pharisees, maybe. Um, I, I, maybe I didn't cover this when we did it in Matthew, because I think it's a parable about the religious state of the Jewish nation at this time. They had cast out the unclean spirit. The unclean spirit they'd cast out um, probably was primarily idolatry. And the, throughout the Old Testament, that was always the. the um, Defining sin of the Jews was idolatry. By the time you come to the to, to Jesus' day, they weren't worshiping idols anymore. They had cast out the unclean spirit. But according to this parable, what did they fail to do? Establish a, a, a good relationship with God. Yeah, they had failed to put anything in place of the spirit. You cast out the evil thing, but they didn't put anything in place. So the evil spirit came back worse than ever. And so here you had these Jews, especially the Pharisees, who had gotten rid of idolatry, but hadn't put faith in God in in place. And so they end up worse than they were before. I think that's what that parable is about just because of where it it appears in the story. So then, in verse 27, there's a woman that speaks out while Jesus is preaching. And what does she say? Blessed is your mother. Oh yeah. It it must be so wonderful to be your mom. (laughs) And what's His answer? His brothers and sisters, I guess. Yeah. The blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. It, it, And realize this is not 
this does not appear here in a vacuum. He just got done addressing the, the basic sin of the Jewish people. And now someone from the crowd says, oh, it must be wonderful to be your mom. In other words, relationship, physical relationship, that's what counts. And that was the attitude the Jews had. They were Israel. We are Abraham's descendants. We are physically related to God. And Jesus says, no, if you want to be blessed, obey God. That's how to be blessed. It's not the physical relationship that, that does it. And you see in the very next verse, the subject has not changed. He says, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. That, that was exactly what these Pharisees were asking for when they said he was casting out demons by the power of, of Beelzebub. And so he's still on the same subject of the sign and condemning the, the, the Jewish nation because of their unbelief. Um, I'm going to skip over some of this though. But I do want to notice verse 33 because this, this one surprised me. No one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar under a basket but on the lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. I'm sure when you read that you say, oh, I've read that before. I mean, we had that in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what did it mean? Yeah, Matthew. Yeah, show God in your life. Let your light shine on the people around you. But it does not fit that meaning in this context. It's the same same teaching, but it doesn't fit. He's talking about the generation seeking for a sign. And so we have to look somewhere else for the answer to this. And I, and I think the lighting the lamp here is what Jesus has done. Jesus came into the world. He Himself is a lamp and, he intent, and, and He's shining it for everyone to see. They keep asking for, for a sign. Jesus is saying, the lamp is shining, folks. You've got a sign. You know, we're not doing this thing in, in, in hiding. So this is this is this verse is not addressed to us like we should be shining. This verse is basically telling the Jews, you've already got the light. What are you going to do with it? And look at verse 34. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. Their problem was not that Jesus was not shining the light. Their problem was their eye. They were blind. And Jesus is rebuking them for being blind. We need, and every one of us has to has to be aware that we we too can be blind. If we don't want to see something, we will not see it. This this is not just true of people out in denominations where they don't see certain things that we can see. This is true of us. We can be completely blind to facts that are critical to, to our spiritual life. Our eye can be, can be darkness. Alright, so then, in the next set story, the couple of verses is, is again unique. When he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him and he went in and reclined at the table. And, and what was the Pharisee surprised about? And the ceremonial washing. Yeah, yeah Luke's the only one that tells about this, but he obviously didn't know Jesus very well. 
<laughs> to be surprised by this. Although in, in the other Gospels, that Jesus got criticized because His disciples didn't wash before they ate. But here, Jesus is the one not, not washing. And then He turns and rebukes the Pharisees, which this is also in Matthew. Talking about how they wash the outside but not the inside. He says in verse 41, but give that which is within as charity and then all things are clean for you. And then another one that's only in Luke is in verse 45. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say that, you insult us too. What's Jesus' answer? What do you lawyers do? Oh... Yeah, and there. By the way, what was a lawyer in those days? It was religious law. Yeah, he was an expert in the law of Moses. Yeah, this is not like you know lawyers that you go to court with. Um, they they're the ones that, that studied and they taught people what the law said. And he says, "You weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers." They had. And, and when you read what they were teaching back in those days, it's really true. They, they came up with very restrictive rules. But they also had loopholes. <laughs> and loopholes that oftentimes only the rich people could avail themselves of. So he, he deals with them for quite a, quite a ways. Um, uh, in verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge... You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. And then what was the result? What was added to the Pharisees had toward them after that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they did not appreciate being guided in the right way. <laughs> um, yeah. Alright, so then... Um, Chapter 12 is, is a whole chapter about warnings. Um, some of these we've had certainly before. Um, first of all, in verse 1, what does he warn against? Eleven of the Pharisees. Now, in, in both Matthew and Mark, we, he warned them of the leaven of the Pharisees when he was where? Yeah, he was in a boat. And and what did the disciples think he was talking about? We forgot to bring bread. Forgot to bring bread, yeah. But this apparently is in a different context. Because um, it says there were so many thousands gathered together they were stepping on one another. So he warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees. And this he just tells them. It's hypocrisy. He doesn't, he doesn't let them guess or anything. And then he says some very important things about hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? I'll double face. Yeah, you're, you're pretending to be one thing when in secret you're another. And the only way a hypocrite can get away with it is you don't see everything in his life. He, he does things when you're not around. And here's the answer to hypocrisy. He says, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Um, accordingly, whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Uh, every so often you'll see in the news, and this has been going on for decades, where some, some politician had a big dinner 
will say something in private to the person sitting next to him without realizing that that microphone in front of him is on and, and the news people are listening in. Um, the first one I can remember in my own life was when Henry Kissinger made a comment about Nixon long after Nixon had resigned and, and told the guy next to him, you know, how, how disgusting Nixon was basically. And, and he was, of course, very embarrassed because he was still friends with Nixon. Well, that's sort of a parable about all of us. When we say things in private, Jesus is saying, one of these days what you said in private is going to be shouted from the housetops. Hypocrisy is not going to pay. What we say in secret needs to match what we do in public. And then he continues... um, in um, warning us about not to be afraid of humans, be afraid of God. And in verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear you are more valuable than many sparrows. Um, That's where we get confidence from, knowing that God knows everything about us, loves us, and will take care of us. And then in verse 13, while Jesus is still talking, we have another thing that's only in Luke. Someone in the crowd says what? Tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Yeah, Jesus is teaching about justice and all this. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with him. So does Jesus do that? (laughs) Not exactly, but He does take advantage of the chance to tell a parable that He doesn't tell in any of the other Gospels. Um. The land of a rich man was very productive. So what did the rich man decide to do? I've got a store there someplace. So aren't big yeah. <clears throat> what a problem to have, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Don't have enough room. To... Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And what happened to him? He was required to stand before God. That very night, yeah. So who gets, who gets all those barns and things? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. So he, the guy shouting out from the crowd gave Jesus a chance to talk about attitude toward money, which Jesus talks about a lot. And in fact, in Luke, he talks about it a lot. And he continues after that parable, after let, you know, just a real quick story where we look at it and we say, uh, yeah, that guy wasn't in such good shape, was he? Um, then he says, do not worry about your life. What does that have to do with greed? Linda? And it's so about getting all this stuff and worry about getting enough. Yes. What do we worry about? We worry about things. You know? Things. I don't have enough things. Um, I don't have enough to eat. I don't have enough clothes. Well, of course. We live in a much wealthier society. Hardly any of us have to worry about not having enough to eat. And yet, we still worry about things. I mean, this is, it doesn't matter what economic level you're at. You could be a millionaire and still worry about things. It's because we, we're putting our trust in the wrong place. And so he, he tells these stories like how the ravens don't sow and reap and they don't have a storeroom and yet God takes care of them. 
by the lilies and how God clothes them. And he says in verse 31, but seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. This is not a secret formula for how to get rich. This is a formula for how not to worry. Jesus says the thing you need to be attending to is God's kingdom. That's what matters. You attend to God's kingdom, He'll attend to your physical needs. Not that He'll make you a millionaire, but He'll make sure you have what you need. And if you think about it, if God gives us what He thinks we need, who could want more? Who could want better than that? Only someone that doesn't trust in God. That's, that's who. He says in verse 33, well, well let, me, let me verse 32 first. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Now, of course, the world would think, huh, I don't want the kingdom. I want money. But he's talking to, to disciples here. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Where else have we read about selling your possessions? Well, the wealthy young man. Yeah, the rich young ruler. He said, you know, what do I lack yet? And Jesus says, well, one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. And I've heard people preach about this and they'll say, you know, Jesus didn't tell us to sell our possessions. He just told the rich young ruler it was special for him. Look what he says here. Verse 33. He's not talking to the rich young ruler. He's talking to the disciples, to us. Sell your possessions and give to charity. So he really wasn't giving the, the rich young ruler a command different than what he gave to everyone else. But Wow. That's one where we tend to be very blind to. Let's see where I am. Then in verse 35b, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. This again is only in Luke. Although it reminds us of a parable in Matthew. Do you remember what that one was? The virgin? Yeah. Yeah, the five that ran out of oil. Yeah, it reminds, but it's not the same. Because in this case, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast. <laughs> it's a wedding feast, but it's a, you know, these are the servants that are supposed to keep the house ready when he gets back. And he expects them to be up, ready to open the door. And it doesn't matter how late he comes, he wants them to be up. Um. Verse 40, you too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And then Peter asks the question, what's his question? Is this for us or is this for everyone else as well? <laughs> yeah. And of course Jesus answers like He answers a lot of things <laughs> with more questions. <laughs> Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom His Master will put in charge of His servants to give them their rations at the proper time? And... And so he tells a parable, which really the parable is addressed toward religious leaders. You have to have religious leaders. A church that does not have leaders is a church that's just going to go aimlessly. But if you have leaders who think that this is all about me, which is what the parable is talking about, you have disaster. 
And Jesus says he's, the master's going to come and that guy's going to be in big trouble. Um, in verse 47, that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, he'll receive many lashes. But the one who did not know and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. And then he says in verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Now that phrase there is unique to Luke. Although he did use the term baptism when... You remember when James and John asked if they could sit on his left and right and said, oh, can, can you be baptized with a baptism I can be baptized with? But here he talks about just about himself. He has a baptism to undergo and he is distressed. Um... Alright, I'm going to go on to chapter 13. The need to repent. Yeah, some, some people told him a, a story. What was the story about? Yeah, why'd they mention Galileans? Where's Jesus from? Yeah. So, I think maybe it's a lesson. Yeah, that's what... You know, that's what God thinks of Galileans. They came to one of the feasts to offer sacrifices and Pilate mixed their blood with their sacrifice. In other words, put them to death for something they had done. Well, Jesus says, do you suppose these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? And then He turns around and gives them a story about 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell. Siloam was in Jerusalem, so these were Judeans. So Jesus is showing, you know, it's not just Galileans that, that get killed. Sometimes Judeans get killed. But in fact, unless you repent, He says, you all likewise perish. Now I think that the, the immediate context was the punishment coming upon the Jews for rejecting Jesus. But the principle applies to us today too. I mean, all of us need to repent or else we will all perish. But still back on the, the context with the Jews in verse 6, a man had a fig tree. This again is a, a unique one in Luke. He planted it, and what was the problem with the fig tree? One bearing fruit. One bearing fruit. But the vineyard keeper asked for how long? Three years. Now, isn't that interesting? How long did Jesus preach? About three. And a half. Yeah, about three and a half years. Yeah. So in verse nine, if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, what? Cut it down. Cut it down. Yeah. All right, then we have a Sabbath story. He was teaching one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. We had much the same thing in, in the uh, in Matthew, Mark as well. And although this this particular story is not in Matthew, Mark, it's unique. I think Luke has more of these Sabbath stories than, than either Matthew or Mark. Jesus all the time rebuking them for their inconsistency. They don't care about these people that are sick, but they care about their own possessions. They care about their ox or their donkey, and so on the Sabbath they let, they let it out. But this poor woman bent over double like that. Hey, you can come on another day. Um, verse 23. This is a new story. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? What was His answer? Yeah. He never did actually answer that specific question, did He? I mean, I don't know how many are being saved. But I do know that 
Many are not being saved. <laughs> he did tell us that much. In verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter, will not be able. Now he actually, that comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. But in this case, it's, it's, it was prompted by a question from, from the man. And, and he goes into some detail. Um, when, when the master closes the door and you start banging on the door, hey, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And what does he say? Depart from me, evildoers. Yeah, I don't know where you're from. Depart from me, you evildoers. Um, all right, in verse 31, the Pharisees warned him. The nice Pharisees, what are they warning him about? Go away, Herod just wants to kill you. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder wonder why Herod's upset about him. <laughs> I think the Pharisees were told, yeah. So he says, Go and tell that fox, behold, I call cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, on the third day I reach my goal. He's he's not going to be moved by by their threats. He, um... All right, chapter fourteen has another healing. Um this one it surprised me a little bit because usually when you think of Jesus healing on the Sabbath, where is He when He does the healing? He, in a synagogue. Yeah. Where was He this time? He was at the house of one of the Yeah. Um, they'd probably done the synagogue service first thing and then after that He got invited home for dinner. and He comes over and now they're watching Him because right in front of Him was what? Yeah. From dropsy, which is a, a um, accumulation of fluid in the limbs and all, um, and they're watching him because they know Jesus can't stand to see anyone sick and not heal him. <laughs> so he he starts the the discussion: Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? What do they say? Yeah, they're not willing to answer that. Uh, um, then he he went ahead, of course, and healed the woman. <laughs> he had some parables about. Uh, dining, because he's 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 been invited to dine. And he noticed what was he notice the guests are doing? They're all headed for the places of honor. Yeah, they they always sit down in the place of honor. What does he tell them they they need to do? Be more humble and perhaps you'll be invited to come up. Yeah, and that's really that's a parable about the Jewish nation. The whole nation felt like we have the best place. We're sitting right next to God. Jesus says, you know, you really ought to put yourselves lower and then maybe God will put you higher. And then he told another story in verse 12. When you invite a, when you give a lunch or dinner, who should you not invite? All your friends and your brothers. Yeah, well, those are the ones we almost always invite. Who should you invite instead? The poor people that Yeah, poor people that can't invite you back. And then you'll get rewarded at the resurrection. Then, since he's going on about these different meals, in verse 15, someone uh, says to him what? Yeah, oh, won't that be wonderful when we get to eat bread in the kingdom of God? And so Jesus tells a parable to show that not everyone thinks so. <laughs> There's a lot of people that, that are invited that say, hey, i got other things to do. <laughs> oh... Um, in, in verse 26, he tells somebody we had in Matthew and Mark. 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. But now we have something new after this. This is only in Luke. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Or, in verse 31, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Now, in the parable, who does this king represent? Well, it's the one who would be the believer. That's what we always think, and I don't think it's right. <laughs> there really was, there was, it represents a real king. Our king. It represents Jesus. Jesus is the king who is setting out with a small army of 10,000 to encounter the enemy, Satan, who has 20,000. This is a parable about him. But how can he do it with only 10,000? Because he's considered in advance. How am I going to beat an army of 20,000 if I only have 10,000? They got to be a special ten thousand, and that comes back to these verses when he says, "You've got to carry your own cross." If he's got ten thousand people that each are willing to carry their cross, who hate their own father and mother, the king is everything to them. He can win the battle. He's the one building the tower, and he knows what it what it takes to build the tower, and so he's telling us. I have calculated the cost. I am this king. And here it is, folks. If you're in my army, that's what it requires. We cannot do it without that. Well, you can think about that. <laughs> I see two ways to think about it. One is many people would have heard his message of the golden rule, love God, love your neighbor, and say that's a great idea. But you do have to consider what that really means if you're really going to do that. Uh, which means, you know, give of your substance to help the poor. Yeah. But the other thing is, too, Jesus also had to consider the cost because uh, for him, it was going to cost him a terrible death on the cross. It was a major cost. Yes, it certainly was. Chapter 15. Again, it gets led off by what his enemies are saying. What are they grumbling about? Yeah, Brent. Yeah, bad company. Yeah, you know, man's known by the company he keeps, right? (laughs) And so Jesus tells how many parables in answer to this? Sheep coins, probably. Yeah, sheep coins, lost son. Three parables. Only one of those is in the other gospels. The first one about the sheep is in Matthew chapter eighteen. The other two are unique to Luke. And they make an interesting set. If you look at them as a progression, what do you notice in terms of numeric value between the first, second, and the third? Um, That's right, yeah. If it's a fraction, it's increasing. 
The first one, you lost one out of a hundred, and he goes after it. The second one, the lady lost one out of ten, she goes after it. third one, the man lost one of his two sons, and he's so happy to have him back. In the Bible, the number three is a unique number. Um, what do we associate the number three with? The Godhead. And let me suggest that that works very well with this three. Um, the first parable, shepherd going after the sheep, who would that represent in the Godhead? Jesus is a good shepherd. And He left heaven and He went after the sheep. The second parable, what's the lady lighting? A lamp. She likes a lamp so she can find the lost coin. What's what is in the Bible? What is a what does light represent in the Godhead? Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Yes, and without that light, she's not going to find the lost coin. Without the the light from the Holy Spirit, the lost are not going to be found. And finally, who does this guy represent in the Godhead? That's the Father, yeah. So we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit with these three parables. And and this third one, of course, is is such a masterful parable. I mean, I'm sure all of you have heard sermons on this. I've actually read more than one entire books, a, a whole book on just this one parable. I'm, multiple ones I've I've read. Um, the, it, there is just so much that you can get out of this story. Um, one author suggests, and I think he's right, is that everyone is one of these two sons. You're either the younger son or you're the older son. <laughs> and it's something to think about. And of course, the immediate context of the parable, the older son represented those Pharisees that were upset with Jesus for associating with these sinners. With these sinners. All right, then um, we get some more parables, different subjects, these parables. Um, and Jesus just leads off in this one. These are, um, these are unique. Both, both of these parables are unique to Luke. The first one is a very bizarre parable. This unrighteous steward, he's apparently been cheating his master. So the master says, you know, let me see your books because you're getting fired. And what does the guy do to solve his problem of what he's going to, how he's going to live after he gets fired? He immediately goes to all of the people who owe his master goods and says, "What kind of deal?" So he cheats some more. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a parable about a cheat. He's a cheat from the beginning to end. He's getting fired because he's a cheat, and so now he he figures out he's going to need some some friends. So he he cheats his master of the money they owe him. He's basically giving away stuff that doesn't belong to him. So these people will appreciate it and take him in after he's fired. And Jesus recommends this behavior. He's saying, you need to do the same thing. Verse 9, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Earlier he said, sell your possessions and give to charity. 
And, and He's saying the same thing here. But the point is, when I give money to poor people, whose money am I giving away? It's God's money. Yeah, I'm just a steward. And Jesus is saying, you need to, you need to do just like this other steward did. Give your master's money away so then when the money fails, well, when's the money ever going to fail for me? When we die. Yeah, when the money fails, you'll have friends. <laughs> well, there were some people listening, and, and who were these people that thought this was pretty foolish? Pharisees. Yeah, and <clears throat> brethren, that needs to be a concern to us. The Pharisees were the most spiritual people of the day. The, the Jews all considered the most spiritual. They were the strictest in interpreting the Scriptures. They, they followed every, every little jot or tittle in the, in the law. And yet, they were lovers of money. This could be talk, he could be talking about us. I mean, it's not enough for us to follow all these rules and tell everyone else where, where they're misunderstanding the Scriptures. What's your attitude about money? Their attitude was, ha! They just scoffed. He says, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And so then he tells another parable in verse 19. What do we call this one? Rich man of Lazarus, yes. Rich man's living it up. This, this painting from the 1500s shows how a guy in the 1500s is living it up. But... Um, it hasn't changed a lot to this day. And there's poor Lazarus. What are these dogs doing? Licking his sores, yeah. And then they die, and of course the tables are turned, and and Lazarus is sitting uh, in, in splendor, and the rich man is being tormented. And then Jesus has the story even continue, and the rich man wants Lazarus to do what? Go back and warn his brothers. Go back and warn his brothers. And Abraham won't let him do that because what do they already have? They already have the, the Scriptures. Moses. Yeah, they had Moses and the prophets. Oh, but this would be different. If someone comes back from the dead, they'll listen. He says, no, they wouldn't even if someone comes back from the dead. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Jesus came back from the dead and the, and the same people that were scoffing here continued scoffing. Well, we got to quit. Any last questions or comments? All right, I appreciate everyone's participation.